0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history. And everything in between, including your story, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorite. And today we have a story from Chicken Soup for the Soul, Life Lessons from the Cat Book, which can be found on Amazon.com. This story is entitled The Cat No One Wanted, and it was read to us by Renee Vaco Search. Here's the story.
1: I was hesitant when my niece called to ask if I would foster a pair of cats until she could find homes for them. My husband and I had already adopted several strays and felt we had reached our limit. Although we live in the country where there's plenty of room for our cats to roam, there are still quite a few costs involved in caring for pets. I found them in the hollow of a tree at the campground, my niece told me. They're both declawed. Immediately, I was swayed. Most cats can't survive in the wild without claws. They need them to hunt for food and defend themselves against predators. After consulting with my husband, we agreed to keep them temporarily. When my niece showed up with two long-haired calicos, we were shocked to see how emaciated they were. At first they were both skittish, but the male cat soon realized he was in a safe place and overcame his fear. The female cat, on the other hand, dashed down the hall and disappeared into our son Benjamin's room, huddling against the far wall under his bed. My husband named the male Sam and the female Hal, an acrostic for hides-a-lot. Though identical in appearance, Sam and Hal's personalities were as opposite as night and day. Sam was playful, curious, and affectionate. Hal was fearful, cautious, and aloof. We placed posters on the vet's bulletin board. Within days, Sam found a wonderful home. Hal, on the other hand, wouldn't venture out from under Benjamin's bed other than to eat, drink, and use the litter box. No one wanted to adopt the sullen cat. After almost a week, Hal finally ventured out to nap on Benjamin's bed while he was at school. But as soon as my husband or I entered our son's room, she would dash back under the bed. Gradually, she began to sleep with Benjamin, curled up next to his pillow, near enough to sense his presence, but not close enough to touch. Almost two weeks after Hal arrived, Benjamin experienced a full-blown meltdown. Our son has high-functioning autism, also known as Asperger's. When his sensory issues trigger a meltdown, he goes to his room, lies on his bed, and covers himself with his favorite cat blanket to block out all sensory input. Unfortunately, it still takes a while for him to calm down. Although he'd slammed his bedroom door, we could still hear him ranting about the unfairness of life. I was about to enter his room to check on him, when his tirade stopped suddenly. It was as if someone had flipped a switch. Ear pressed to the door, I heard nothing but silence. Carefully, I opened his bedroom door and peered in. Hal was lying on the blanket covering Benjamin. Our son's breathing was slow and regular. Spent after his meltdown, Benjamin had fallen asleep with the cat resting on his chest. Over the next few weeks, we witnessed the same phenomenon happen every time Benjamin spiraled into a meltdown. As soon as he lay down in bed and covered himself with his blanket, Hal would settle on his chest, and within seconds, Benjamin would transition from agitation to complete calm. My husband and I had read about weighted blankets, which often help individuals with autism to relax and calm down. Now it seemed that cat was providing the same type of effect. It soon grew quite apparent that Hal had come into our lives for a reason. The frightened, aloof cat has developed an unusual bond with Benjamin. She seems to sense his special needs and appears to have her own sensory issues to boot. She doesn't like to be touched, hates loud noises, and favors solitude over boisterous games with the other cats in our house. But none of that matters to Benjamin because he shares the same sensory issues. Benjamin and Hal are best friends. When she's not eating or taking a walk around the garden, you will find Hal napping on Benjamin's bed, curled up beside his pillow, or lying on his chest when he's feeling stressed. The Cat No One Wanted has blessed us beyond expectations. We gave her a home, but she has given our special son so much more.
0: And a great job, as always, by Faith, and thanks to Renee Vago Search for her reading of The Cat No One Wanted from the book Life Lessons from the Cat Book from the Chicken Soup for the Soul, folks, and you can find it at Amazon.com. Renee Vaco-Search's story, her cat Hal's story, and her son Benjamin's story, here on Our American Stories. And now it's time for a special short and recurring feature, here on Our American Stories. It's time for Lindsay Marie and her Why Minutes.
2: I'm Lindsay Marie, and you're listening to The Why minutes You know, there's just something about cruising down the open road. Windows down, music up. That just makes you feel so free. That is, until you see those red and blue lights in the rearview mirror. Your stomach sinks and your heart skips a beat. You know you were going a little fast, but you weren't being reckless. Regardless, you still end up with that $300 ticket. A not-so-gentle reminder that freedom has restrictions, even on the open road. But it's all in the name of keeping us safe. Right? Well, not always. You see, back in the 70s, there was an oil shortage, and the government was looking for ways to conserve oil, but ultimately drive the price down. So, they set their eyes on our country's interstates. They limited speeds to 55 miles per hour because, as it turns out, the faster you go, the more oil you burn. The idea was that by limiting the speed, the demand for oil would be lower, ultimately making the price go down. But a lot has changed since the law was repealed in '95. Cars are designed safer, faster, and way more fuel efficient. But have you noticed what hasn't changed much with technology? The speed limit. What was once used to save us money is now used to take our money. The Why Minutes. Because Why Matters.
0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to tell stories about music and stories of songs here on this show. And here's Greg Hengler with the stories of three Beatles songs.
3: The identity of the true fifth Beatle has been hotly debated for half a century, but the strongest case can be made for George Martin. The band's trusted and loyal producer, Martin served as expert, mad scientist friend, and father figure throughout the band's studio life. he shaped their songs in ways that are seldom appreciated, but impossible to forget. Here's the Beatles live at the Cavern Club in 1962, and George Martin.
4: We proudly present the Beatles!
5: I didn't realize when I signed the Beatles they'd already been to every record company in the country and they'd been turned down by every record
3: company in the country. Here's Ringo Starr. When we first
5: met George we loved him because he took a chance on us. No one else would take a chance with a name like that. You come from Liverpool, not a chance in hell. I think it was really a gut feeling I had about them I think it was their charisma. When I first met them, the Beatles knew nothing about a recording studio. Their experience had been performing in front of people at the Cavern and in Hamburg and that kind of thing.
3: Here's John Lennon.
5: George had done uh, no rock
4: and roll when we met him and we'd never been in a studio, so we did a lot of learning together.
5: I think the Beatles would have made it as great musicians, whether I was there or not. I think the fact that I was there helped out. I think we probably got there more quickly.
3: Here's music producers Nigel Godrich, Tony Visconti and Rick Rubin.
6: What happened with George Martin's work with the Beatles is that he added himself into the picture. He was an arranger, he was a musician. He had some technical knowledge that he could use to augment what they were doing and took control of the overall sonic picture.
7: I kept seeing George Martin's name on the records. And then when I saw a picture of him, I thought, my God, he's about twice their age, you know. He looked like he was a a director in a bank. You know, he had a suit and tie all the time. His hair was swept back. It was like, wow, these people work together? That's, That's crazy. He was older and wiser, and he brought a deep musicality. They had it intuitively, and he had it intellectually so he could help them execute ideas that uh, a less skilled producer could
3: not could not do
5: it wasn't until a couple of years later they started doing more sophisticated songwriting that i had so group most touching material
4: walking, walking.
5: it'll be an F for you
4: I'm in G, but it'll be in F. It goes E minor to A seventh to D minor. Ready?
5: When Paul first wrote yesterday, he came to me and said, have you heard this one before? Because I dreamt about it last night, and I'm sure in my subconscious I'm pinching it from someone. I said, no, I'm sure it's an original piece of music. Stick to it. It's great. Okay, man.
4: today all my troubles seems so far away that looks as though they here to stay he
5: said what do you think then i said well there's nothing we can do to put on top of this is going to make it more beautiful except perhaps some strings
3: here's giles martin
8: with my dad being the posh bloke in the studios the classically trained musician there was a An initial reluctance from Paul to have a string quartet on yesterday.
3: Here's Paul McCartney.
4: I was always frightened of classical music, and I never wanted to listen to it because it was Beethoven and Tchaikovsky and sort of big words like that and Schoenberg. You know, know, I always thought, you know, it's high class, that. It's very highbrow.
5: I was rehearsing musicians when he walked into the studio, and he saw the score that I'd written, and he came up to me and said, what's this? I said, it's all the music that the musicians are playing. He said, you haven't got my name on it. I said, I'm sorry, here's a pencil, Put your name on it? So I wrote on it, yesterday, by Paul McCartney, John Lennon. Looked at me, George Martin Esquire, and then giggled and put down, and Mozart.
4: Yesterday, love was such an easy game to play,
2: I need a place to hide, oh. Oh, I believe in yesterday mm.
5: Yesterday showed Paul how a string quartet could be quite effective on a really good song. And then he came to me with Eleanor Rigby, which cried out for strings. Not the smooth legato stuff of yesterday, but something was very biting, very rhythmic, very edgy. suggested to me the stuff that Bernard Herrmann had been writing for Psycho, for example.
8: Elna Rigby is the first time that the Beatles weren't playing any instruments on one of their records. It is just a string octet. The octet was recorded into four-track. On track one here, you have the first violins. And here are the second violins. You can
7: hear bleed, because they're all in the same room together. Oh, my gosh. I played that over and over and over and over again. It was just, just so smart. George Martin obviously knew this stuff, and he knew how to put it on a Beatles record. That's, that's the trick. For the first time, you're hearing a string octet and you're tapping your foot.
3: You know, look
4: at all the lovely
7: Rigby. you know, until then, I thought, I can be a rock star. I want to be a rock star. I want to be on stage. I want to have the girls screaming at me. I want all that stuff. I want a limo, everything. But now, I wanted to be George Martin. That was more important, to be in the studio, to do that kind of stuff, to be able to experiment that way and to make great works of art that only exist on tape. That's very important. You know, it's a very different art from performing live. That's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be George Martin.
5: When I walked into Abbey Road Studios for the first time in 1950, I was astonished at how primitive it was. They were still recording on discs that were cut by a lathe. From 1950 on, I just worked away, and I had various ideas. I was experimenting with the newfangled tape, and I was able to learn what you could do to manipulate sound. You can cut, you can edit. Obviously, you can slow down or speed up your your tape. You can put in backwards type. And this is the kind of thing you can do on recording, which you obviously couldn't possibly do it live, because it is, in fact, making up music as you go along.
7: Take one, uh,
4: take six.
2: How could I dance, she won't dance, I'll never dance.
5: When I first met the Beatles, I had so little time with them in the studio, because they were incredibly busy all the time. I would have maybe a day and a half here, and a couple of days there. As a result of that, the songs that they produced, which were marvellous, were still fairly basic. One, two, three,
3: well, she was just
4: The first album only took us 12 hours. I mean, we all knew those songs so well because that was our live show. We were just in there doing the, the gig, really. So how could I
3: music producer brian eno
5: the old approach was that the band rehearsed went into the studio stood in front of some microphones and played them and the job of the producer was maybe to mix them well or put a bit of reverb or echo on them but essentially the music wasn't transformed the beatles were over that phase by about 1966 With the help of George Martin, they were starting to make music that you couldn't actually play. It couldn't exist outside of a recording studio. It's very difficult to imagine what the Beatles would have sounded like without George Martin.
0: And when we come back, more of this riveting story. If you love music, you're going to want to hear more George Martin's story in a way, a producing industry's modern producer story here on Our American Stories.
4: Do they all belong?
0: This is lee habib and this is our american stories we return to this fantastic storytelling about the fifth beetle and most people think the crucial beetle without whom the Beatles might not have been the same and martin is a humble man but when you hear rick rubin talk about and rick rubin may be one of the great american record producers talk so glowingly about george martin believe rubin and let's return now to greg hengler's story the rest of this story
3: When multi-track recording became multi-multi-track recording, more than any other, producer George Martin used this new technology to transform the Beatles. Here's music historian Chuck Granato.
9: What's wonderful about this moment in time is that four-track recording opened up the possibilities to use the studio in the creative palette. So the Beatles transitioned from... A garage band group that's standing around the mic playing and singing Please, Please Me, and I saw her standing there into a decisive recording group. start to use technology to create sounds and sonic textures that had never been heard in rock music.
6: The Beatles revolutionized the way that people worked in studios, you know, on rain. It's the first time there's anything backwards on a record and you could say that like from that moment on it's like all the, the rule books out the window because you're no longer trying to represent something as it was. You're, you're trying to break it, break your perception of this band. You know, there's this
0: band playing in a room.
3: Here's Ringo Starr
4: more fun in the
5: record if there's a few sounds that you don't really know what they are and really they're just instruments only something happens on here you know i couldn't tell you what because that we have a special man who sits here and goes like this and the guitar turns into a piano or something you know and then you may say why don't you use a piano because the piano sounds like a guitar
3: hey! here's john lennon
4: We were all on this ship in the 60s, our generation. We were part of it, and uh, we went somewhere.
3: Here's George Harrison.
4: There was a great upsurge of energy and consciousness, and so there was a lot of excitement on the street. There was a lot of people who were all trying to go on the same trip together.
3: Here's Beatles biographer, Bob Spitz and music producer, Don was.
4: On
5: Revolver, the Beatles wanted to make the music that was going on in their heads. The first song they worked on was a song of John's. It had the mysterious title Mark One, which of course becomes Tomorrow Never Knows.
4: That's
1: me in my Tibetan Book of the Dead period.
4: I gave it a throwaway title because I was a bit self-conscious about the lyrics of Tomorrow Never Knows, so I took one of Ringo's malapropisms which was like hard oh, hard
3: day's night. Tomorrow
9: Never Knows, that's a song that pretty vividly depicts what you're hearing in your head when you consume some psychedelics. The Beatles laid that out for everybody to hear.
3: Here's George Martin.
5: Tomorrow Never Knows was a very weird song. The tune had virtually no harmonies. It was based on a continuous drone of sound.
3: Here's George Martin's son, Giles.
5: Tomorrow Never Knows started with a backing track
8: recorded here at Abbey Rose Studios. That's Paul on bass and ring on drums creating a sort of loopy mesmeric effect. To this, John added his vocal with George playing tambora. Turn
4: off your mind, relax and float downstream. It is not dying. It is not dying.
7: Late in the song, John's voice gets very unusual sounding, especially at the time it was. John wanted to sound
5: like the Dalai Lama chanting from the top of a mountain. And he suggested that the way that they record that would be to put him in a harness, to hoist him high above the studio, give him a shove, and he'd, he'd sing... Every time he came around, the mic would capture a few
7: beats
3: of it. Here's Tom Petty.
7: Which wasn't the most practical idea. But the engineer, Jeff Emmerich, had the great idea of plugging it into a revolving speaker called Leslie. So when it goes fast, it creates one sound, and when it slows down, it creates another
8: In the early part of the song, John's voice is pretty straightforward. Then, after about one and a half minutes, the Leslie Speaker effect kicks in. That love is all and love is
3: everyone. It is knowing. It is
8: knowing. The Beatles always looked for other sounds in their records. And they all had tape machines which they used for recording demos. And they found that by making tape loops they could create sounds that people had never heard before. One of the most recognisable loops on Tomorrow Never Knows is the sound of what well, sounds like seagulls squawking. It's actually the sound of, uh, I think, Paul laughing um, and speeding himself up, which is this. Another loop is just made up of guitars being recorded over and over again, again sped up and slowed down, turned backwards. And they sound like trumpets. And then, early days of sampling, Paul actually recorded um, an orchestra of a vinyl record and created a chord here.
5: I had a bit of a problem. How were we going to use the collection of sounds? I devised a way of playing five loops at the same time. And if you brought up the faders, it was like bringing up an organ stop. Each one had a different tape loop playing all the time. So you could make your sounds as you wish. And these tape loops are running and running and running. And the Beatles and my dad and Jeff
8: Emmerich performed on the desk, pushing up faders at the right time in order to create the instrument sounds they wanted for the mix. The actual mix of Tomorrow Never Knows is a performance. It can't be recreated.
3: Here's music writer, Warren Zanes.
4: If you look at everything that's happening in that recording, it's like a prophecy of pop music in one song. With the sampling and the loops, There's so much happening there that will be active for the next four or five decades.
3: Here's Rick Rubin.
7: You can look at hip hop and using samples or scratching in music. Beatles were doing that and Tomorrow Never Knows. That song makes you rethink what music is. It's that profound.
3: Here's music producer Tom Visconti.
7: This was the dawn of creating a new kind of magic. This was really fantasy stuff.
3: I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories.
0: And great job, as always, Greg. George Martin, the fifth Beatle. By the way, we have an hour on his life. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and look up George Martin. This is Lee Habib, the story of a few songs, the story of one of the world's greatest record producers, the fifth Beatle, George Martin. And it's time for our This Day in History segment, as always brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, a great place to study all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life, philosophy, history, the arts, sciences. They take sports seriously at Hillsdale, too, as they should. And of course, if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you with their terrific and free online courses And there are 16 or 17 of them available. You can get yourself the college education you never got. And by the way, I went to a great law school and learned more from their Constitution course than in three years at the University of Virginia School of Law. That's hillsdale.edu. That's where you can go to see all that they do. And on this day in history, Fannie Farmer, the mother of level measurements, opened her cooking school in 1902.
3: Cooking in the late 1800s was unpredictable, tiresome, and difficult. Recipes were passed down in families, but often contained vague, if any, actual measurements. If the ingredients were named, home cooks might have been directed to add a pinch or a dash, or to make a pie crust. On January 7th, 1896, a young woman from Boston changed everything when she published her first cookbook. Fanny make us some food now that's the thing that you do now when you're ready to eat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fanny Merritt Farmer's self-published tome the 1896 Boston Cooking School cookbook was 600 pages and contained almost 1500 recipes and sold for $2 I asked Ken Albala professor of history and food studies at University of Pacific in California, if what history says about Fanny Farmer is accurate.
4: Fanny Farmer is usually credited with having introduced measurements to cooking and a list of ingredients and basically the modern recipe format. That's not quite true. Um, there were measurements before, and in fact, some authors use precise measurements five centuries before. Um, what she does introduce is the level measuring cups so if you take a cup of flour or sugar or something she says to use the flat end of a knife and scrape it off to get a level measure and the assumption was that cooking is not an art it's a science and that if you get your measurements exact you're going to have the same results every time which of course is not true because ovens are erratic and ingredients change um, depending on the weather flour especially really most of the world me- uh, measures it by weight <laughs> for some reason in the U.S., and my, my instinct says, and I can't really prove this, but is that we had people selling measuring cups, and that's why it caught on in the U.S., is that we assumed, you know, every time you scoop a cup of flour, as long as you give it a level measure, somehow it's going to come out uh, to be the same thing all the time, and, you know, that's just a... a pretense, and it matters in baking, perhaps, but certainly no other type of cooking does it really matter how much you throw in of everything. So our her, so her reputation in that respect is a little a little skewed i would say um i think what is fascinating about her is of course she was a businesswoman you know and um she didn't found the boston cooking school she inherited it from uh, mrs lincoln who actually even had a cookbook preceding hers uh but for some reason hers is the one that caught on um the publishers didn't think it would in fact they made her pay for the first print run which is sort of sort of not a nice thing to do for an author it says we don't really trust you but you know maybe if you make the money um, we'll, we'll, we'll publish it, but you have to take the risk. And the irony of it is, of course, um, it sold millions of copies, and she got all the, she held the copyright, so she got all the profits from that, not the publisher.
3: Fanny Farmer's cookbook sold over 4 million copies during her lifetime. Fanny planned on going to college, but a stroke at the age of 16 left her paralyzed and forced her to stay at home. Eventually, she would walk again, though she would always maintain a limp. Here's Professor Al Bala.
4: And I think it's probably why, after doing the cookbook, which is very well known, she did a book of convalescent cookery, um, what you should feed sick people. And, of course, the idea, I've actually this is something I've actually written about, so it's the only thing I can speak of you know, with direct authority about Fanny Farmer, is that um, I think her own personal experience gave her some insights into what to feed people um, when they're uh, sick or convalescing. And what struck me as being very fascinating is the idea of what you feed people who are recover, recuperating is, that doesn't change over centuries and centuries. It's basically, you know, very soft, white, mushy food that's, was, presumed to be easy to digest, um, something comparable to baby food, if you want to think of it that way. So a lot of mush, a lot of milk toast, um, puddings and things that, that we might not today think were you know, necessarily so good for you or nutritious, some concentrated broths, things like that, that were thought to be easy to digest. But she did a whole cookbook based on um, convalescent cookery, I think just after the turn of the century. It's maybe 1904 or 5, somewhere in there. And we still don't really, really know what foods are best for people who are convalescing. You know, we, we know they need vitamins, we know they don't need things that are very difficult to digest, but they have this idea that you couldn't give um, sick people spices or you couldn't give them, you know, uh, stimulants of any kind, so no coffee and things like that. And that, we don't know that there's no scientific basis really for that. You know, spices aren't necessarily bad for you or hard to digest.
3: So how does Professor Albala feel about exact measurements in cooking?
4: If you look at older cookbooks quite often they won't give you exact measurements they'll say you know definitely a pinch of this or that. and I think that's actually a perfectly fine way to cook I cook that way and I write cookbooks that way also um, some people find it infuriating but I think you know if you're going to really cook you should learn what you like. You know, if you like a lot of salt in your food, then you will understand how much to add. You know, why should, you, why should anyone trust my taste? The thing that I find amazing is, you know, say, a recipe will say, bake this for 15 minutes, and someone looks in the oven, and it says, and they look at the dish, it's clearly not cooked yet, and they take it out anyway, and they say, well, the recipe says 15 minutes. <laughs> it's like, well, no, trust your senses. You know, trust what, um, what you can learn through experimentation, and eventually you'll find out what you like. So, so I think a, an exact recipe of which Fannie Farmer is not the inventor, but, but certainly uh, contributed to our sense that cooking should be a science. I think what that does is comparable to what a, a GPS device does. You know, it, it gives you the directions. You come to depend on it. You never really learn where you are. You never really learn how to navigate, or you, even if you didn't know how to navigate, you come to trust the GPS device rather than your, your own instinct. And it, it unskills you. It really, I think people who follow recipes also come to trust them so explicitly and think, oh, if I veer one inch from this, the whole dish is going to be ruined, which 99% of the time, that's not the case. Maybe if you're doing cakes or very delicate pie crusts, you know, a little, a little bit too much of anything might ruin it, but, uh, but it's still going to be edible. So it's still going to be fine. And I think for most recipes, you know, anything you cook, it's not really going to matter.
3: Fannie Farmer revolutionized the domestic cooking world, but Professor Albella leaves us with this cookbook caution.
4: So I think in a, in a sense, I would, I would almost blame Fannie Farmer for the use of, for the impression that exact recipes are the only way to cook. And the cookbook authors must give you an exact measurement, an exact cooking time, a temperature in the oven or a stove top. And that, that sort of thing really isn't under anyone's control. And we have the impression that it is. And I think it's made us Um, de-skilled. I think in the long run she's actually contributed to our our not knowing how to cook so much because we depend on exact recipes, pseudo-scientific recipes. Um, And I can understand why modern cookbook authors follow in in her footsteps. It's because they want to copyright their exact wording and their measurements and all this stuff, and they want to give the impression to the reader that this is going to work. All you have to do is trust me and follow it, when what they're doing is preventing the cook from trusting themselves and trusting their own instinct and feeling the pan feeling the spices and throwing them in and tasting it and seeing if it needs more, you know, that sort of thing is, I think, essential to cooking, and especially cooking so you like what you make, you know, is not trusting someone else's taste.
8: I'm so hungry, mama, and I know you feel the same way, too. Well, it smells
3: so good now. I just gotta have some food cooking. In 1902, Fannie Farmer left the Boston Cooking School to open Miss Farmer's School of Cookery, aimed not at professional cooks, but at training housewives. Though she suffered another paralytic stroke later in life, she continued lecturing. In fact, 10 days before her death in 1915, she delivered a lecture from her wheelchair. A revised version of her book, now known as Fannie Farmer's Cookbook, is still in print today, over 100 years after its first printing. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And thanks for that, as always, Greg.
0: And by the way, my grandfather, Leo, taught me uh, measurements, measurements. Um, He was, here's the tomatoes, learn how to taste it, and make it different every night. And you want to throw in the sausage and the meatball, throw it in there. You want to put in some extra colic, go for it. And so it was always intuitive Fanny taught a lot of people how to cook, and especially housewives. Great story. Our This Days in Histories is as always brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Check out what they do at hillsdale.edu. Fanny Farmer's story here on Our American Stories. <laughs> And This is Our American Stories, and it's time for our American Dreamers series. And always, it's sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network. And Job Creators is hard at work trying to promote policies that help and aid Main Street businesses across this country. Big businesses are well represented in Washington, D.C., and often they're trying to thwart the efforts of small ones. And big versus small is a big theme on this show as his up versus down and always we're fighting for the little guy and for those small business owners across this country on main streets trying to turn their little businesses into bigger ones. And today our own Alex Cortes brings us the story of someone that you likely know, my pillow founder Mike Lindell, but you likely don't know his full and remarkable story.
9: People always say how ironic you were a cocaine addict and you invented something to sleep. In 2008, um, my dealers, they did an intervention on me. I get downtown Minneapolis, and all three of them are in the room. I go, what are you guys doing here? Now, I'm in a the worst part of Minneapolis, in, in the one guy's apartment, in Joe's second apartment. I said, you guys know each other? I'm up for 14 days or, you know, they said it was 19, it's 14. And uh, the one guy says, he goes, he goes, what am I here for? And he goes, he goes, well, Mike's been up 19 days and we're shutting him off. And, and uh, I said, I've only been up 14. And he says, you've been with us the whole time. You know, they all, they all you know, knew I hadn't slept. And the one guy leaves, he says, he ain't getting nothing from any of my people or me. And he was just disgusted and left. And before he left though, he goes, you made a promise to us, because all the time when I'd be doing drugs and stuff, I would always promise him, this is a platform that's going to help. When I quit, I'm going to come back and and help everyone you know, get out of this horrific addiction and everything. There were many times I was in crack houses or bars, whatever, and I would talk about Revelation, which I read about when I was ever in jail. You know, every time I was in jail I'd read the Bible. About the only time I would, you know. So I'm telling these guys well, they would quit that day, the next day like 28 people quit all through my life. I'm going, well, what did I say? And they go, I don't know, but it sure made sense Well, normally you would think it's a hypocrite Yeah, this is really bad, give me another line, you know, and and they would they would listen, but all that time, it was me telling them, trying to convince myself, you know, trying to convince myself whether it would be Jesus or whether it would be to get off the drugs. It was me trying to convince myself. So anyway, these guys are in the middle of this intervention thing, and the one guy kicks the other guy Joe out of his own apartment, and he sits there in the chair next to me. He says, "How much you have left?" And I had I don't know enough to probably uh, last an hour or so. And he sits there and, I, and now I, I run out and I'm scraping the pipe. Anybody that's on crack out there, you're scraping the residue out of the pipe and re-smoking it and trying to, then you're looking on the ground all over the carpet, trying to find pieces you may have dropped over the last few days and it's horrific. And then uh, anyway, I look over and he's asleep. So I head on down to the streets. I'm the only white guy down there, I'm. they're going, you ain't getting nothing from me. You're not getting nothing from me. And I mean, all these things they're saying, I'm going, how do they know it's me? know my buddy Joe that he just he goes yeah he goes Mike didn't realize we told him you know if a, if a crazy white guy comes down with a mustache you know <laughs> so Joe just told this story the other day and he because he works for now he's a Christian he works for my company and he, so anyway I get back to the room and I defeated and I get in there and and uh, he's sitting in the chair and he says uh, how'd that work out for you and I said I was so mad and I said you know, it was like 2 30 in the morning three in the morning and he goes. He goes. Give me your phone. He says, "You're gonna take. You're gonna take this picture. You told us you're gonna write a book. You're gonna need this for your book. It's like think of someone up 14 days in a mugshot or whatever, but and times that by five. You know."
6: Mike believes that his drug addiction was all because
9: of his parents' divorce. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Everything in childhood. Everything in childhood trauma. Everything affects. It manifests to addictions, manifests to personality disorders, a divorce. But a divorce, a fatherlessness, affects everybody. This was not known back then. I mean, it was very rare. You know, my mom and dad divorced when I was seven. I was nine days into second grade, brought to a new school. Um, I was the oldest child, so I was babysitting at seven. It was uh, to fit into the new school. I, you know, I did a lot of crazy things to you know, climbing out a moving bus window to show off. And uh, I worked at a drive-in movie theater and the drive-in movie theater was voted the best job to have in the 1970s. One time I remember climbing up the back of the screen and on these little rungs and me and my buddy that worked there were gonna moon the crowd. And we stand up, there we're 160 feet off the ground and I'm afraid of heights, we hang onto the screen and now I couldn't get back up, and I'm going to fall to my death, and my and my clothes fall off, my pants fall off. So he's helping me trying to get back up, and he gets me back up, and I just petrified climbing back down. Of course, the police were waiting at the bottom, and they're going, and this is the 1970s. They're going, he goes, uh, my manager's there. He goes, these guys work here. He goes, oh, this, you know, and the guy, they go, you get back out there, don't do that again, and get your clothes. I mean, that was it. But you look back now, I'm going, you know, all those people watching, going, is that part of the movie? You know. And, uh, I did a lot of different things like that. I know a lot of it was uh, was out of boredom, you know, um, just things to do. I wanted, you know, just excitement. Even though I, even though I get myself into trouble, it was exciting and it was challenging getting out of trouble. You know.
6: <laughs> Mike went on to college, although he didn't know why.
9: I didn't know what I wanted to be. I talked about maybe being a lawyer, you know, and all these different things, but I didn't know what I wanted to be, and it was like. That was the thing to do, go to college. And I had, I, w- I didn't go to class, I went to class twice. I was working two jobs, my roommate's going, uh, what are you even here for? And I would just go take the test and still get seized at not even doing anything. And that was the year of the uh, Iranian uh, crisis, the hostage crisis, and as soon as that happened, I used it as an excuse, I'm out of here, the you know, world's coming to an end or whatever. I'm, I'm gonna go have fun while he's gone, you know. I just thought it was a waste of time. I mean, I'm going, it's a repeat of high school, these things, and my whole thought process, why do you have to go four years of this um, general college and then to be a a doctor or a lawyer, whatever you want to be, and that bothered me. I'm not gonna sit here and waste my time. That's the way I thought.
6: So he put his attention
9: elsewhere. Working at the grocery store, I got heavy into illegal sports betting, and I, uh, was betting with some very bad people on sports and I ended up owing them a lot of money and they came to my trailer and left a note. I said, if you don't pay by tonight, things are gonna get very physical. That night I went to work at the grocery store and I told my manager, I said, Lenny, I said, if if anybody comes through the door here and looks like they might be in the mafia or whatever, it looks like he's, I said, so we say Mike, telephone line three. We only had two telephone lines. I wasn't even there three minutes And I said, I hear, Mike, telephone line three, and out the back door I went, and I went and got their money the next morning and paid them. Little things like that, you know?
0: (laughs) And more on this remarkable story, Mike Lindell's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We return to our American Dreamers series. This time, Mike Lindell. And we return, at this point, he's dropped out of college. He's working at a grocery store. And for the owner's son, who was his manager.
9: I had been uh, fired, it was a union, I'd been fired I don't know how many times the union got my job back, or, or his dad did. And uh, it would always be over stuff that uh, I didn't like his rules, and he goes, "If you don't like it, you know, get your own company someday and, and make your own rules." And there were so many things I didn't like as an employee back then, and I've have changed a lot of that now to my own company, where to make things better. And he he said that the final the thing he did that where he finally fired me, I was I was on five different schedules, and one of them I knew I was probably on, but I didn't want to look at it because I was seeing my cousin that I hadn't seen in years. <laughs> and uh anyway the next day i come in and he's working to me. he says you've been suspended indefinitely and i said i don't what does that mean i i like you like you know i didn't realize that you're done you know i didn't know what the words meant and uh so i said yeah we'll see about this so i went to his dad and he said he looked at me he says mike i'm not i'm not getting behind you this time he says you're destined for bigger things he says you're gonna look back someday and see this was meant to be and he says, you can't be a lifer here even though, and, and they had both told me I'm one of their best employees, but I just had problems. And I uh, never forgot them words. I looked back and it wasn't too long looking back going, well, you know, wow, that had to happen. Or I might still have been there for years later,
4: you know.
6: But it would take more than one incident to really kick in Mike living a real life
9: my fifth year reunion with my class everyone's now is out of the college they get these amazing jobs they've started families or they've kept with the same company since high school. So in my mind they were way ahead of me and it was very it was bothering me inside and then it was just a going, wow, everybody's ahead I mean, I'm doing stuff to show off. And I you know I got into, you know, I was a card counter. Then I took a card counting class, professional card. But I hadn't even started it yet or whatever. I just do it at the class. So I'm, I'm bragging it at the reunion about skydiving with a parachute not opening and my car accidents and my, you know, card counter, things that they've never seen or the mafia coming after me, you know. So I'm blowing their minds. And so we don't get on the topic of, uh, yeah, how are you doing for work? How are you doing now? Uh, you know, what are you doing, Mike? How many kids you got? How many, know, how's your family? You know, I'm just completely putting up this wall, you know, for these other things. And so they're all thinking I'm nuts, basically. But it was a very, it was, that starting there, it was a very much a driver. And it was like, a, there was a lot of, now it started to be shame. You know, I'm going, you know, this is, this is not who I can be. And then I prayed, I said, you know, God, all I want is to meet the right woman and have, you know, kids and, and, uh, you know, be the the white picket fence, so to speak. And then God brought that all to me and handed it to me on a silver platter.
6: Until Mike jeopardized his answered
9: prayer. By then I was a very functioning cocaine addict too. I look back and I'm going, oh, it was perfect. Well, no, there was a lot of dysfunction. Even though it's hard to, for the addiction to to hide it all the time. The kids didn't even know then. That's how good I was. I mean, it was a lot of work hiding the the cocaine and then the and then crack. The kids didn't know. Okay, even like neighbors. Let's give our kids or send our kids over there because we were the fun. You know, this is back in the you know when they were younger and was with cocaine. But then when the crack came on, that took us down fast. When the cocaine turned into crack, and and the kids, my daughter at that time, and we, we got right when it all kind of blew up. She says we're very dysfunctional family. I go, I don't know what that means, but don't ever say that again. We're not dysfunctional. That's a swear word, what do you mean? It sounded just horrible. I didn't know what it really, really meant, you know. uh, (laughs) So that don't sound great. But I lost it all. You know, eventually lost it all.
6: And in the midst of a lot of this dysfunction, Mike was already running my
9: pillow. I tried every pill. Even when I was 16 years old, I bought one of my first paychecks, went to buy a pillow at that grocery store I worked at. This
6: teenager spent $70 on a pillow. That would be $287 in today's money
9: for a pillow. So I spent the most expensive pillow thinking it would be the best. It was a down pillow and it was the worst because, you know, I know now they just sell us air. I mean, I mean, how can that be? It feels good, down it goes, but I couldn't return it. That I do remember. They would not let me return that pillow. But then throughout my life, I'm trying different pillows. And I always had problems with sleep and wake up in the morning, with headache, neck ache. But mostly these sleep interruptions are not being able to get to sleep right away. So in in 2004, I had a very clear dream of the name My Pillow, and I wrote My Pillow all over the house, and and connecting the Y and the P, and and, you know these logos. And I'm going, that sounds really corny, you know. Um, But I go, well, where's My Pillow? You know, I mean, if you, it's hard for you to think back now because there's my everything, and it was because of My Pillow got big, everybody took up the mys, But my daughter came upstairs, and there was, she looked, and there were pieces of paper written all over, and. Lizzie says, uh, she gets a glass, of water. She, I don't know, she's 11 years old maybe, and she said, what are you doing, Dad? And I go, I go, I'm going to invent this pillow. And, I, and now I realize I hadn't even got the, you know, what, what it's going to be made of or what it's going to do. It's going to be the best thing ever. I've seen it. And, and this is going to be called my pillow. And she looks at all these pieces of paper. She goes, that's really random, Dad. And she went back downstairs. Well, then the kids said to their mother at the time, when's dad gonna get over this pillow thing? And uh, he says, oh, it's just a phase. It'll be it'll be, over. And I wasn't, at that time, I wasn't doing anything. I'd sold my little bar and restaurant. So my total focus was on this pillow now. Well, then I still had to figure out the material. So we tried over 94 different kinds of foams and fills to put in there my one son darren and i he was now managing 1100 or 1200 employees of the manufacturing that's what he does now but he's like nine or ten years old and every day we get home from school and we try different kinds of stuff on the deck and the foam would fly all over the neighborhood and we tried little machines to get the work and finally we get it and it worked once we had the pillows all made we had mortgaged our house everything and we had no money left but we had like 300 pillows And I went into the first pillow, I walked into a, it was a Bed bathroom, Beyond, I'll just say the name. In Bloomington, Minnesota, I go in there, I said, I got the best pillow ever. I said, this pillow is going to change, you know, change, you're going to sell more of this than anything. It helps this, helps you sleep, blah, blah, blah. And where's your buyer? Who's your buyer? Where's the manager? And he looks at me, he goes, you need to leave. And I'm going, the guy just had all this passion, you know. And I'm going, what do you mean I need to leave? I said, I want to talk to you about And I learned right away. And I started calling on other stores and everybody. It was the same shutout. My brother-in-law's brother said, Mike, why don't you do a kiosk? And I said, what's that? How do you spell kiosk? And then we did this kiosk. And I had a little sign of stencil where I put on family-owned and Operate." I colored in the, the stencil. And the other one I put, chiropractor Recommended." And she goes, his then wife. We can't have this. She goes, someone can sue us. I said, I gave one to a chiropractor, our friend, you know, and he loves it, you know. But it was way far, you know, here's a mall and here's this in a mall. It just was almost too corny, you know what I mean? Almost too real. But I did. we did sell about 80 pillows. And the one day, obviously we lost, uh, I don't know, like $15,000 because it's very expensive to have a kiosk on November and December. And But one guy, he came up and he said, Hey, you have a do you have a card? And I go, I don't have business cards. I, I go, oh, I'm all out. I sit here and I gave him my number. And in January of that year, now chaos was almost you know a complete failure basically. I borrowed money from my ex bookie to buy Christmas presents that year. And by the way, the reason he was my ex bookie, he said if you quit gambling, I'll borrow you money. I mean that. I mean that's uh, you know he cared. <laughs> and, uh, so this guy called me in January and he says, are you the guy that invented this pillow? The one guy I gave my phone number to. And I go, yeah. And he goes, this pillow changed my life. He says, it is a miracle. And he was all about that. I'm going, okay. And and I'm excited to hear, you know, not worrying about where I am at, that this is, I'm going, I was just so happy for him that it helped him. And he goes, I run the Minneapolis Home and Garden Show. Would you like a spot in there? And I go, and and I'm thinking to myself right away, well, the kiosk didn't work. And I'm going... I go, well, maybe there's more people or something, you know, and I'm going, sure. Well, I didn't have money, and of course, I had to borrow money to get into there. But then um, I go into that home and garden show, but what I did is I got behind that booth. I could sell. And once I got behind, it was, whoa, it was like, wow. And as I'm seeing people, they would literally come back the next day, so many people after that first day go, this is a miracle. And same thing the guy said. Now I'm feeding off this passion and I'm just it was like amazing where that I realized I could sell and I could sell and help people. And I sold out that four days. Sold out. I was and I'm going, wow, I can this is where I'm gonna be. I can support my family in spite of everybody turning me down. So I started doing home shows and fairs and got in the Minnesota State Fair. We blew it out of the park. We're still there.
6: And as they say, the rest is history. But that's a tad bit blasé for this story. There were more trials to come.
0: And the story of Mike Lindell, an American Dreamer story as good as any we've done. Where till you hear the rest of the story here on Our American Story. Turn to the life story of my pillow founder Mike Lindell.
9: I had this mask on and probably from when th- when the divorce from childhood. I always had to have that's when I got a hold of cocaine. it was so easy. I, everything I did I had to be on cocaine to be able to talk to people and be able to have my confidence because I have this unworthiness inside of me that a lot of people have from you know from different things that have happened it's an unworthiness and now when I quit all my drugs and everything, That was, it's been quite a journey to where now, I if you'd have told me I would be speaking in front of people or doing a commercial, I would have said, there is no way. In fact, I did a little human interest story once at a local station. I was still on drugs at the time. It was 2005 or six. And this little public access station in Minneapolis, I came down there and she goes, um, hey, this post uh, he was going on, she says, you want to go on his show right now? I want you. I go, I'm not going on the show. And she goes, and She goes. no, I want you just the way you are at the home shows. And I said, well, I'll come back in an hour because I want to go get my drugs, right? So, and she goes, no, go on right now. So she talks me into going on. Now, I was so petrified. Anybody that knew me said, you didn't have drugs, did you? And anybody that didn't know me said, what, is he on Drugs. You know what I mean? Because I was so, like, I was all over the... I've never been so nervous. I just couldn't even talk. And I never forgot that. And I'm going, if you'd have told me then, oh, you you don't need all this, and you're going to be an amazing, you know, speaker and all this stuff. I'm going, okay, that ain't going to (laughs) happen.
6: And yet, there was one place in Mike's life where he didn't need the drugs. Where he was... home
9: interesting with the home shows um, you know I I noticed one thing when I was behind that table and people came up they had a reason for me to talk to them now if I left behind the I didn't have to have drugs that was the only it was like a phenomenon now if I went out to smoke cigarettes outside the door and there's three people there I wouldn't even go near them. I'd have to because I wouldn't want to talk to them. you follow me I wouldn't want to talk to him. So it would be when I was behind that behind that table talking about my pillow. I was in a, it was like a wow, you know this amazing new thing where I could talk to people. And so I didn't need that. But obviously, if I had cocaine, it would be it would be you know the same. But what I noticed, I could have the same passion with with the cocaine or without. Only in one spot behind that booth. Once I left that booth. I mean, it's like walking into another world. I'd walk if I'm in, the, I'm, and I have to talk to you, and you're the next booth over, and we're going to talk about the weather. It's not happening. I'm climbing up. I'm avoiding. You. I'm going. Hey, yeah, we'll talk to you later. I didn't know what to say. I was very socially stunted in that respect, where I probably have the social skills of a twelve-year-old. The home shows
6: were the one place in Mike's life that was certain. It was his world, his pillow. Not the uncertain world outside those doors where he was damaged by his parents, the drugs, and an unknown future. The shows were the place where he could feel that he was a
9: positive force in this world. For me, I didn't have money. It didn't matter if I had money. I would. I had a skill. I could go out and get money. If I borrowed money, I would pay you back double because I couldn't. I couldn't accept anything from anybody. I have another wound where I don't accept. I'm a giver, but I can't accept, which I have worked on. You know, I can't accept. If we were gonna, if we were gonna go to lunch. Guess what? I'd have a hard time you buying me lunch. That's the way you know I am, and that's a wound. That's actually, it's not a healthy thing either. It's be able to accept is also uh, just as good as blessing someone but I couldn't accept, especially back then. If you and I were doing drugs, I'm not taking some of your drugs, you're taking mine, you know. But to be able to be in that pillow show and to just see people coming up, I just felt like God gave me the idea for the pillow in the first place. I'm going, wow. I wouldn't get depressed because of that. It was like a constant feed of people going, this is amazing. You know, I had this with my neck and this and I'm getting sleep now. I knew it was such a divine solution. I could have sat and just, help people forever and never got I wasn't thinking like okay I'm gonna make millions of dollars my thought was always I'm gonna help millions of people there's a difference
6: but to reach his fullest potential in helping people there was just one person that he had to help first himself it was March of 2008 when he was brought to that intervention by the three biggest drug dealers of Minneapolis of all people. That might have woken some people up, but not Mike yet. His Christian faith was always there, but it floated in and out of his heart. He grew up in a non-denominational Christian church and never had a real relationship with Christ.
9: An interesting thing happened a week after that um little intervention i 'm sitting all by myself at this place I was living, and I get a phone call now remember I, we talked about that little public access station that on, and that lady was nice Christian lady she would air it just every now and then at, you know, and I would get phone calls of people wanting to buy pillows then you know, so it's was helping me out and and uh, well, that night it 's about nine thirty at night, and the phone rings, and I answer and and i 'm up doing you know of course i 'm still up for probably two three days and she says, you know, I, I'm, are you the guy I've seen on Channel 6? And uh, I said, yeah. She says, well, she says, God, God, I prayed, and God told me to call you and say what you're doing is so important to the kingdom. Can we pray about it? And I said, okay, so we're praying. About a half hour goes by, and she goes, I say, you know, goodbye, and I still have her name, by the way, for this, you know, the proof that this happened. About another hour goes by, another lady calls up. And this never had happened. Okay. I really got one call to buy a pillow. And she calls up, she says, Are you the guy I've seen on channel six that invented this pillow? And I said, Yeah. She goes, Well, I haven't bought one and but she said, um, I was gonna call him and see if it's okay to pray with you. She said, and what you're doing is so important to the to God. And I'm going, Okay. And so we pray for about an hour. That was a long one. And we pray and I talked right nothing. you know, I'm doing lines of cocaine, I wanted someone to talk to her anyway, you know. And um, now three in the morning, this guy calls up same night, and he calls up and he answers and he goes, "I want to get you the guy on TV." And he was mad, and I go, "Yeah." He goes, I goes, let me get something clear here. I don't believe in God, but I keep getting this dream that I'm supposed to call you and tell you what you're doing is important to God." And he slams the phone down, very upset. Now about seven in the morning, the phone rings and. Um, And I get on there, I go, you don't want to buy a pillow, you want to pray. And she goes, well, how did you know? And I'm going, it seems to be the thing tonight, you know? And and, uh, she ended up buying a pillow, though, too. But but we, so we prayed. So that day, I'm going, wow, you know, and I knew that this platform, then my sister called me up a week later. She says, you got to quit standing in front of semis and think that God's going to pick someone else for this. He, He chose you for some, for a big calling. My sister is telling me this, and I'm going, and I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I heard that last week, you know. <laughs> and, she, and she goes, you have a calling, and this, and she said this window's going to close, and God's going to choose someone else in your and But then I'm kind of thinking, well, if I'm chosen for this, I can surely wait, you know. So I procrastinated through the year. And when, when we talk about bottom, for me, I wouldn't really have a money bottom because I've survived, you know. Addicts are survivors. Any addicts that are out there, it, addictions are so... There's a lot of work. They're so hard to maintain them, to hide your addiction, to get enough to make money, to get your drugs. I mean, there's just so... It's a lot of work. And most addicts are very smart. They're going to get what they want.
0: And when we come back, we're going to hear the rest of this remarkable story. And I just love the line that I, I never got into this thing to make millions out of it, Mike Lindell said. I thought... I'm going to help millions of people. And that's a big difference, he said. And it is. And, of course, we've heard that from so many of our American dreamers. And that's where money comes from in this great country. When you help other people, they pay you for the service voluntarily. And then, of course, the faith element of this story is equally impressive, maybe even more. And you're going to hear the rest of this story, and it just keeps getting better, folks. Our American Dreamers segment. Mike Lindell's story. My Pillow's story Let's return to the final portion of our American Dreamer series: Mike Lendell's story, the founder of My Pillow.
9: We get to December of 2008, and an interesting thing happened. My friend, that had quit for three years, his name is Dick, and he was the first guy I ever did cocaine with in 1984. But he had been free of everything and had found Jesus for three years, and I hadn't seen him for a year. He used to be one of my dealers, all right? And now he's the only guy on the planet. You know, I've been to treatment centers and stuff through my life for different things, gambling, uh, drugs, alcohol, to get my license back. And he's the only one that could have came there where I could ask him questions where I would respect the answer because he's been there. Well, anyway, here comes Dick, and he walks in the door. He says, I said, Dick, what are you doing here? He says, God sent me out here. He says, what's going on? And I'm going, well, as long as you're here, I got a few questions for you. One of the first things I asked him is, is it boring? And that was a big question all addicts because a lot of addicts think with addictions it's it's because you're bored. It's not you're hiding pain. You're hiding pain and you're doing it, to, you know, you're all that whatever you're doing on the for the high, it's just masking the pain. But so I was very concerned about is it boring? Then he left. That was in December of oh eight. Now on January 16, 2009, I sat there, and I'm going, okay, it was just like they used to have black and white TVs. When you turned them off, there'd be that little tiny dot, and you turned it back on before that dot went out, right? And and in my mind, I just knew that if I waited one more day, I, someone else would be chosen. And at the same time, I thought, you know what? This is going to help so many people, because this is going to be, God's going to show the best come back or the best with God all things are possible ever this story this story is going to be an amazing story I actually thought that the day I quit and so I prayed I said God I want to wake up in the morning and free me from all these addictions I don't ever want to feel them that you know the desire free me from the desire and uh, I said then I'm all yours I'll do this platform that was my thing so I'll do this you know whatever you want me to do so I wake up in the morning and it's gone it was a peace it was like wow I didn't have any money. I told my friends and family, let's all pool our money and do this infomercial dream I had. If nobody's gonna take my pillow, let's bring it right to the people. And I didn't know that infomercials don't work. It's just to get in box stores. You don't make money on the front end, but i nobody told me that. It's like an old Gilligan's Island episode when Gilligan's up flying and the skipper goes, Gilligan, get down here, you can't fly. And Gilligan says, I can't, and he crashed to the ground. He was flying just fine until somebody told him he couldn't do it. Well, nobody told me I couldn't make this infomercial and couldn't make it, you know, amazing. In my head, I'm going, this is going to be the biggest ever. I'm telling my friends and family.
6: Mike says that in a dream, there were specific numbers about this hypothetical infomercial success
9: that came to him. I'm going to go to a million dollars a week or two million overnight. A
6: wild success for something that pretty much was at nothing. But here we go, and someone introduced him to
9: a so-called expert. I said, I have this dream in this infomercial with just a real audience. And I didn't want to be in I didn't want to be on TV. I said, maybe somebody do it like we do at home shows. You know, just make it real. And she goes, no, you need an actor. And she says, then they wrote a script. The phones are lighting up like Christmas trees. I wanted to throw up. I said, this is not what I want. And she goes, I'm a professional and all this. But now the money kept going down. Almost all the money we had got from my friends and family that everyone put their life and just believe in me was almost, we were running out. We didn't even have anything. So d- divine appointment, I met this other guy. So he's going to do this infomercial. Well, it turned out I was going to do it because he had seen so much passion. This guy says, you need to do it. And then all of a sudden, they had wrote this script, and I went to read it. They had this big professional guy had come in, and he's sitting there, and he's listening to me read off this script, and then her, and he goes, this is the worst disaster ever. This guy is terrible, okay, being me, you know? This is, it's, they didn't know what to do, so they they decided they would go with no teleprompter.
6: That Mike would try ad-libbing the whole infomercial.
9: It will also become a hard surface, and it's no good.
6: What about this one?
9: This one here is Ruined America. Oh my So we go in there to film it, and I was so scared. But once again, I got behind that counter, and it was like a shield between me and the audience where my comfort zone and i just went naturally and whatever now on october 7 2011 i'm living in my sister's basement and, and this aired at three in the morning and all of a sudden this half-hour infomercial comes on and i'm going wow i'm watching myself you know usually i would get so uncomfortable but i'm going i hadn't seen it yet i had not seen it i had not i couldn't watch it so this is the first time i watched it and it was surreal and it wasn't like ooh, i'm on tv it was like wow this is like divine wherever you set that you get exactly what you need for your individual neck support okay you can turn this any way you want you can make little balloon animals okay it's gonna hold it takes six pounds of pressure to hold that it was just all natural that it was like it was real it was what i wanted i didn't want it to be a cookie cutter you know, infomercial, and we exploded. We went from five employees to 540 days. We were hiring people as fast as we could. We we're working out of a little schoolhouse. We made our own call center because I I had trained a call center in Connecticut. I had trained them because I take customer service so seriously. I called on the second day. I said, "Yeah, what's in that pill?" The guy goes, "I don't know. Google it." I fired him on the spot. I was so upset and. And we made our own call center in a little schoolhouse. We put everybody, my friends, everybody came in, and we took phones through the night. And I look back now, and I say, everybody got their pillows in time for Christmas. I mean, we we were making them, teaching them how to sew. Can you sew? Yeah, here. They go, Mike, you need to be CEO. I go, that sounds horrible. Don't they just take money? And And then I go, we need an HR department. I go, that really sounds bad. I mean, all these things. I just wanted to make pillows, you know. And we took in millions of dollars over the next six months
6: but the experts continued to
9: tell him that his way was stupid they're going did you make this ad this is this is terrible did you write this yourself we can do so much better blah 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 and uh, now it's the number one ad in history I look it up I'll put it up against any ad ever
6: Mike's ad-libbed infomercials that the American people have responded to because he's genuine and real are now selling over
9: 75,000 MyPillow products a day. And people said, oh, Mike, you can't make a pillow here in the United States. you got to make it overseas. I said, no, you're never going to get a patent on a pillow. And all these naysayers, and I fought every single thing. It was a constant fight. And the infomercial finally fatigued. And when it did fatigue in the summer of 14, I thought, you know, it's over. I mean, it was just scary. We were, we were within two days of going under. Uh, During that time and I had fell away from God I didn't uh, I mean I was like when I took in all that money I'm going wow this is you know I kind of kind of forgot about the platform that he had given me and everything started to just dry up Okay, and in the summer of 14. I met Kendra And I noticed something with her that she had that I didn't have it was it was like this relationship with Jesus and I wanted that. I really wanted that relationship or whatever she had. And on February 18th, 2017 is when Jesus showed up and I had this personal relationship now. I'm going, wow, now I have what Kendra has. Now I'm doing speaking all over the country where I have the same passion for the pillow as now I have for Jesus. And that's powerful.
6: Why did the relationship finally come on this? particular
9: day. Operation Restored Warrior is actually for veterans. You go there, it's a five day thing where uh, you give your life to Jesus. And, you know, I was invited, like, you know, I'm not a veteran and I'm going, why? But they all prayed and we're going to invite, we want, you know, God told them that, we want Mike Lindell to come to this. And here I'm there, I'm going, I'm not, what am I doing here with these veterans? You know, these guys have stories that are 10 times worse than any story I have or any wounds. The wounds I heard there in their heart, and Jesus showed up. I mean, I can't even tell you, it was the most divine. I'm walking out of there, I'm going, wow, this is what I was missing. This personal relationship where you're walking with Him instead of just, you know, okay, I'm going to go to church and believe in God. And, you know, before all those times, now I look back. All these chapters and all these things of my life, for me it took all these things because I'm going, this doesn't happen unless it's of God.
6: That the troubled son of divorced parents, the crack addict, the twice divorced father, the near bankruptcies, all of these trials and tribulations must have happened for a reason. That the odds of someone with this story selling 75,000 pillow products a day, meeting with the President of the United States in the White House, and sharing his Christian faith before a crowd of over 60,000 in an NFL stadium after a life of fearing public speaking, this could have only happened for one reason—
9: and by one man. God bless me with this company. That ain't Mike Lindell.
0: And what a great story about entrepreneurship and faith molded into one. Our American Dreamers series as always brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. We've done dozens of these American Dreamers series. But this may be one of the best. Mike Lindell's story, my pillow story,